I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I'm so excited to welcome Kimberly Brooks. Kimberly is a contemporary American artist and author, most recently of the New Oil Painting with Chronicle Books. She is known for her portraits and landscapes and series addressing identity and memory. Kimberly speaks about her work and the science of creativity to museums, TEDx, and podcasts, including the National Endowment for the Arts. Kimberly founded and still regularly contributes to the art blog and interview platform, First Person Artist. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you, Fernanda. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, it's such a pleasure. And it's so great to have you on the show and to talk about all things art, which I don't think gets enough coverage in the world of entrepreneurship. Um, and I do believe that all artists are incredible entrepreneurs in their own right. So that is that couldn't be more true, by the way. A hundred, a hundred percent. I don't care if you're a painter, a writer, producer, director. Uh, I mean, truly early days entrepreneurial activity. So let's talk about you and um, give the audience a little background about your own story growing up and where you, um, where you grew up, what you did, how you got into art, and paint us a picture of your background. Well, I grew up in a little town by San Francisco called Mill Valley, and it's, uh, it was a very different town than it is now because the Bay Area has really changed in the last 30 years. But, um, and, you know, I'm the child of two doctors, and and second generation, first generation Americans. So of course, you know, I could be anything I wanted as long as I was a doctor first. <laughs> so I, you know, got into Berkeley, which is, was basically in my backyard because it was just across the Bay. I mean, yeah, the, the, the East, the Richmond bridge rather. And then, um, right next to my dorm, there was an art store and I used to walk by it and I used to just kind of linger in the aisles. And one day, one of the ladies at the art stores, like a student said, do you want to see the perfect red? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so she handed me this tube of paint and then I bought that tube of paint and I carried it in my backpack for maybe a couple of years before I tried it. Wow. Because I was it just felt like something that you needed to earn the right to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was always the creative doodling, drawing kids, and I would win bicycles and poster contests. And if I, and when I, when I ran for student council, the first thing I would do was change the colors of the school. Like I did it <laughs> in middle school and high school. But anyway, um, because like, I'm kind of bossy too, which is part of my, <laughs> just my personality. Your charm. Um, yeah, exactly. It's part of my charm. But um, my father at the time, who's he ended up, he was a surgeon and he ended up becoming a famous author. And so I kind of watched him make this transition from surgeon to well-known author. And his first book was Art and Physics, which is now kind of a staple in most people's library. And his name, his, he passed away 12 years ago, but his name was Leonard Schlein. And we, we used to go to museums together. So I so I was exposed to art and I was, I helped him edit that book from a very, very early age. So even though it wasn't my, you know, my path, I was very steeped in the world of science and art and connecting the two. Um, so anyway, then, you know, after many years of trying to, 
you know, not be an artist, but say if you're an artist, you it like claws its way out of you. I became one. <laughs> this was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. So I've been an artist for, you know, most of my professional life. I've had other gigs where I, um, you know, it wasn't waitressing, but like in graphic design and technology where I earned money, but I was always painting. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah. So today, this is a very interesting day because I'm installing an exhibition down the street because I have a show on Saturday called New Abstractions. And it's my first series of abstractions. And I wrote a book about oil painting and I wanted to make I, want, I had an idea for a perfect cover for that book. So it became an obsession, like so many things. And that's very common with artists. You start to kind of investigate an idea, but you do it out loud on a two-dimensional surface, and then out of that becomes a body of work. And so I'm hanging 22 paintings right now. Like I actually left the gallery space to come back to my studio <laughs> to record this which were explorations for the cover of the book that is come, which came out two days ago called the new oil painting. Did, don't you like the way I wove all of that into one answer? <laughs> yes, that was beautiful. So now I'm going to make you backtrack so that we can dig in deeper, by the way, congratulations. And Thank you. I, I, um, so excited to see your work. So I, I, I know, um, just based on uh, a little bit about your background, that you also, in addition to your work as an artist, um, have a real affinity for paper. Ah, you mean my publishing company? Well, also publishing, your, your publishing company, but also your journal Oh creation. my goodness, yes, yes, yes. Um, yes, I, well, everything happens for me you know, don't they say necessity is the mother of invention? Absolutely. I would say for me, it's, it's like when something really annoys me, like, God damn it, why can't <laughs> this needs to exist? You know? Mm -hmm. So this is such a, um, a nerdy thing, but I find the phone, I kind of call it like my creativity sucking device. So even though I know I have to use it for all sorts of things and I know I'm supposed to post on Instagram because I'm an artist, but I really don't, like being yanked out of my mental state that is a more creative state. It actually forces me to be like, when, I, um, when I'm thinking or painting or anything, I feel like I'm flying over, I'm flying, I feel like I'm flying. But you know how they say like a hawk or an eagle can spot a mouse from 20,000 feet in the air? Yeah. I feel like every time you get a notification for an email or a like on Instagram, it it pulls you down to where that mouse is. And mm -hmm. I want to stay up in the air because the longer I can stay there, the better the ideas are. Mm -hmm. So I have found that keeping a schedule on my phone and having to check my phone to find out what I had to do was very detrimental to my creative process. Mm -hmm. So I, and I used to use a week at a glance forever, you know, just basically you, you, every week, it's a new week, you open it up, it's, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the left, and it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday on the right. And this is before there was internet, you know, this was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But 
So I, I would, I would insist for my own creative health to keep that week at a glance for my schedule. And then I kept a separate book for my notebook. So what I started to do is I started to, uh, use binder clips to affix the front of the note, the front part of the week at a glance with the notebook so that I would have underneath the clip, the blank future days, uh, future notes and the past future dates. So this might be too, uh, maybe I'm describing it in too much detail, but the bottom line is this, I have a notebook called that I call the creativity notebook. And I actually, I used to sell them, but they're, they're very, I make them in my studio by hand because I, I researched ad nauseum about how to do this in China or wherever. And I, I'm, I was so particular about the paper quality and the brass wire O loop. Like it had to have a certain binding that it just didn't make sense. So I make them by hand and they're, they're kind of expensive, but, but um, yeah. And so I still use them to this day and I have a whole group of people who, you know, when they, when theirs runs out, they, 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 they buy them and it's the creativity notebook.com. I mean, you know, like I said, it's kind of like, a, it's like a business in one of my many little projects that I started. And now it just sort of runs by itself, except for that. I have to make a book whenever I get an order. Well, and they're beautiful. Thank you. Um, they're beautiful. So talk to us, talk to us now a little bit more about the genesis of the new oil painting, your new book. And what made you want to, you know, jump into this and get into publishing and create this book? Well, it's, it, it's uh, such a great question. I, so as my father, Leonard Schlein was growing as an author and speaking around the world and I would be, you know, I used to come with him to his book events and sit there and help him sell the books. And he used to say to me, honey, the book is the pamphlet to the lecture. And he was very much about, he instilled in me the idea that he who spreads their ideas, the farthest wins. Mm. You know? And I really believe that. I believe that ultimately, whether you're writing a book or making a painting or writing an op-ed in the New York Times or whatever it is, ideas are a product. And if you can share them with more people, it's better, you know, mm. I mean, <laughs> effectively. And you know, books aren't necessary. P authors, many people who think that they're going to get rich from making a book, they're missing the point, in my opinion, because it's a way of staking a flag on the moon about a topic, you know, and will, will, you know, can you benefit the world? I mean, at my bat mitzvah, I remember my you know, I think in my speech, I said, I quoted that line by Ralph Waldo Emerson, which was based on that poem that said, if I have made one person breathe easier because I've existed, then I've been successful. And so mm -hmm. ultimately, hopefully you're promoting ideas that are going to help people have better lives. And so speaking of breathing, about 10 years into painting, I started to have trouble breathing because oh. I was inhaling all these solvents. And, um, I just felt like, you know, I have a studio in Venice and it was a really hot day and I was working on with all the smelly products and, and oil painting is a very natural substance. You don't need solvents and resins, but nobody teaches it that way. They all teach you that you need solvent. 
Hmm. in order to thin the oil, which is not true. So the bottom line is I got sick. I, I started to feel terrible. And then I started negotiating with basically what I considered my voice. So either I was going to have to become an acrylic painter, which I don't like, because I don't like the idea of all that thermo. First of all, it dries flat. It doesn't feel the same as oil whatsoever. It dries in 30 minutes. And then you're washing your brushes down the drain and getting all those harmful pigments into the water supply. And a lot of acrylic painters, a lot of people who paint with acrylic because they don't want to deal what they think they need to deal with, which are the solvents and oil, paint with acrylic for the convenience of being able to wash your brushes down the drain. And that's actually horrible for the environment. Mm. And most, so ironically, most oil painters don't wash their brushes down the drain because they don't want to get oil down the drain, but pigments are the same no matter what the medium is. Even mm -hmm. watercolor, oil pastel, acrylic, gouache, oil, it's all the same. So cadmium red in any of those is the same. It's just a different binder. So I, I'm sorry if I'm getting really technical, but no, the bottom no, no. line is I wanted to, um, and, and, you know, my new expression is if I could get one acrylic painter to convert to oil, then I will have been successful. <laughs> that's my new, that's my new motto. But anyway, so I started researching all of the different books about this subject, including ones that were written hundreds of years ago from Leonardo's treatise on painting to following the science behind the you know, high tech film paint, paint film analysis done on Rembrandt's and Velasquez, where they don't have resins in the paint in general. And so the only reason why you need solvent is to dilute resin. And mm. it's sort of like this leftover misconception that you need solvent to dilute oil. You don't. Hmm. So again, I don't want to get too technical because I know this isn't the audience, but the, the secret, the secret to painting with oil is you need chalk and chalk becomes clear in the oil and it extends the, it low, it lessens the anticipate, uh, excuse me, in the intensity of the pigments. So normally people, when they create a glaze, they use resin and solvent and oil and the, and the color to create like a thin film. So if like you were in Photoshop, it would be like lowering the opacity on a color layer to 20. Like you're making a glaze. It's sort of like putting, you know, mm -hmm. a, a see-through layer over an opaque layer. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had to get the word out. So I, I, I teach at Otis, or I used to before, you know, it's been weird since the pandemic, but I said, I want to teach a class on oil painting, but that focuses on safe practices and it was sold out. It was just like, and they, wow. there, there was a waiting list and everybody was like, what is this thing? And, and, you know, they learned that, like I said, Rembrandt, Velasquez, Vermeer, they didn't use solvent to thin the paint. It just wasn't a thing. So all these kids now and schools that teach this are doing it based on this daisy chain of misinformation through a series of books where they didn't know what the techniques were the old masters were because it was never written down because it was a master to apprentice relationship. So I'm trying to fix this misconception, you know? And so I started bringing handouts to class to, to give myself a shortcut. So I didn't need to spend the entire time talking. Right. You know, ultimately writing is so incredible because it's, it creates this 
shortcut to, you know, information exchange. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. and so anyway, eventually it grew into a book and then I, I self-published it through, and I created a publishing company called Griffith moon that most people don't even know I have, but we, that company has now published 38 books and we most mostly focus on, we mostly do books with artists and museums and we do some fiction and nonfiction, but that's been kind of successful. It runs on itself on its own. Wow. I, I like, I like building bicycles. You, you know, I was, <laughs> I was listening to your podcast and a lot of people talk about what their startup hacks were. Yeah. And I, so I've been thinking about what I could contribute to you in a meaningful way and that every project I take on for me, anything, effort I put into it has to be part of building a bicycle so it can run on its own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm just thought I'd slid in that startup. Hack. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, I, we're going to get to that because I'm going to pick your brain in a minute about that. But I, what I'm hearing you say, which um, I think is very, very pertinent to our discussion, especially amongst entrepreneurs is that you're disrupting a status quo within your industry by really highlighting a new strategy and a new way to execute at a better, higher, safer level, which is really what people do in the tech field all day long and, and in the entrepreneurial world all day long. So I think it's fabulous. And especially given the issues involving the environment and sustainability, it's so important that you're bringing this to light. I have never heard it put that way. And as an artist and a painter who's not in that world, I'm so grateful to hear you phrase it that way. I think that's brilliant. Like, wow, <laughs> I never thought of it that way. I guess I am. That's you so are. cool. Yeah, absolutely. You're a little disruptor. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, that's just a, a wonderful way to think on it. But this is a very, um, well, perhaps, perhaps any industry that's ripe for disruptive for disruption isn't ready for it, but the art academic, or I would, no, I, I wasn't going to say the art world, although that is oddly old school too, but the art education, the way they teach oil painting is that they don't. And they just say, go to the art store, get a bunch of materials. And then a lot of people stand in front of the, what's at the art store and they just say, uh, I can't deal with all these mediums and stuff. So I'm just going to go to the acrylic section. Mm -hmm. So there's just this, a, a generation of people that have never tried it because they're afraid of this thing that they don't need, you know? Yeah. And so w that was another thing that, um, I hope my book, the new oil painting will change, which is that it's just this very, thoughtful and hopefully kind of funny because I'm kind of funny in my writing. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a little bit, it has humor in it, you know, and I made all these illustrations with it to illuminate and anchor people's minds around an idea so that I take away the, something that might be intimidating. I demystify it, you know, right, right. so that Absolutely. when you go to the art store, you know exactly what you need. And most of what you need isn't, you know, Mm -hmm. most of what you need, it's not that it's not there. It's just that you don't need that much. Right. Right. You know? So I'm going to ask you to shift gears for a moment and talk a little bit about your creative process, because I think it's analogous to what we would consider startup hacks in the 
way in which you access your creativity and the process that you use to really access your creativity. And I'm referring to a TED Talk that you gave where you spoke specifically about how you start with vision and hope and diving in, if this is ringing a bell with you. Yes, I can. I, I know it well. It's yeah. funny. It was that that started as an essay that I wrote um, that went viral. And then like a, a, a band made an album naming each song after the eight stages of the creative process. <laughs> that was so cool. But what I did was I created this thought experiment and I put a blank canvas in the middle of the room on an easel. And, you know, I had been working on other things, but I wanted to dissect or I don't want to say an autopsy because that implies it's an, it's a dead thing that you're investigating. It was, I wanted to really thoughtfully go through what are the, what, not just the emotions, but what is the mental process that one goes through when they create anything? So I was just encircling this canvas and then, and then, and the idea came kind of suddenly like in a flash and that was the vision stage. And so I thought, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do to start vaguely like enough. And then the next thing that immediately happened was hope because you, when you have the initial idea, you, your spirits fill with excitement about, about what the possibilities could be. And it's very easy to fractalize. And I'm, I'm saying that, but I'm thinking of like that, those beautiful Mandelbrot mm. um, designs, but like, you know, you just sort of think, Oh, what all the different things it could be. And then most people don't go past those two phases. They have an idea and then they think, Oh my God, all these possible things. The, the thing that most people don't do is they don't dive in, which is mm -hmm. the hardest thing to do. Like the beginning part, when you take that pristine canvas and you put the first color on it, it's scary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a, and a lot of people, I would say most people, if not everybody, they all have ideas. They all get excited about them. Most people don't take that first step. Yeah. Or that, or they passively will back into a career or a whatever because they it was carried by momentum instead of by this this action of starting something that you, that's all yours that's yeah. new and that's kind of scary and unknown. I would say right your passion. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so once you dive in, you know it's just that's the hardest part. So if you can get through that phase, then you just, you, you get filled with, you know, excitement. Like, you know, you're, it's the, that's the, that's the fourth, you know, you're excited. And then you oscillate between these next four things, which is sort of excitement and then suspicion that you're doing something wrong. And then, um, clarity and obsession, clarity and obsession. And so you can cycle through those four. You can go from clarity to suspicion suspicion, you know, but obsession is where you love to be because that's where you don't even realize that you're working. Time melts away. And hopefully that's what's happening to me when I'm making a painting or when, you know, when you, when you love what you're doing, you just, you're just in it and you mm -hmm. can't, you know. but you're going to, yes, you're going to have parts where you're going to go back and forth between excitement and suspicion and clarity and obsession, but eventually you're going to get to re resolution. 
And some, um, some artists don't ever feel that way. Like Aaron Copeland, the composer, he felt like he never finished compositions. He just abandoned them. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would say to me when I was starting out, how do you know when you finished a painting? Like that's kind of a common thing I think to ask a painter. And I always know, like I always know when it's not done. And so I don't have that issue, but there's some people, you know, where you feel like anything's possible at any time. So any direction is possible, but I believe, and I believe this, not just with, um, painting, like in a way I sort of, in this series of abstractions I've done, which is I'm going way off the reservation and not painting something. I'm not looking at a photograph or a, or a live anything. I'm just going, I'm sort of creating a problem to solve, which is a very unromantic way to put it. But I do believe that there is an answer. So I do feel like I end paintings, but in the <laughs> Ted talk, so that those eight stages were great for me and for maybe many people to what happens when you create a work of art. But I also believe that there's really 10 stages. There's a stage before and a stage after that's not talked about enough. And the stage before is like, it doesn't look like anything is happening. It looks like there's nothing going on. So you could just be looking like you're having a period of time in your life where, where you're being unproductive to yourself or to the outside world. But that's usually like this rest in music where the most important kind of ruminations are happening, you know, like it's really it's important cooking. to have that silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, and, and what made me think of that is because when I was a young pre-med student and I studied biology, I remember in, um, I remembered the life of a cell. I remember the acronym for it was IPMAT, interphase, metaphase, no, no, interphase, protophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. And oh if God. you look it up on, if you look it up on Wikipedia or whatever, they don't even show interphase because it looks like the cell is doing nothing. But when the telescopes got better, they noticed that that's actually when the DNA was replicating. And that's when like the most serious action was happening that needed to happen in order for it to divide in the first place. So that quiet period where it looks like nothing is happening is a most important period. And I think that that in and of itself should give everybody hope, you know? Absolutely. I think that's such a good point. Now I want to hear what your last, what stage 10 is. Well, so the stage 10 is that most people love most people who can get through those eight, like that most people who actually, they have an idea, they get filled with hope. They dive in, they go through those motions, they end it. Most people don't promote it or they don't know how, mm -hmm. or they don't want to give it that energy. Like they almost get, I'm, I know how I felt. I felt like, are you kidding me? You mean I have to make like 18 paintings and this and that and this and that. And now I need to spend an equal amount of energy telling people about it. Like it's offensive. Like, right. can't I just be an artist? Can I just be like Emily Dickinson and write poetry and then die and let my dad deal with it? Like, I don't <laughs> want to go promote the work. I don't, yeah. mm -hmm. but what, but you suddenly get to this place where you realize that if you don't hit that send button on that newsletter to the 10,000 people, because you're ticking shit about it for whatever reason, because you don't want to like it, it, you, you want to just leave it to your gallery or it's beneath you or whatever, that 
that you're you're crippling your the the creative process because you have to like a muscle you need to flex the muscle of courage that is required to promote what you're doing and it's hard especially if you're an artist because you're not meant many not it's not a it's not a natural psychological space for most artists to be in. Of course, yes, there are exceptions, but most people who are super creative find the act of promoting what they're doing highly unnatural. Right. And they don't want to do that. I, I, I want to wrap up by just saying what you've described is very similar to what um, many founders go through when they're iterating around their idea that typically is coming from a problem space that they want to tackle that's either really close to them or to their lives or to their families, et cetera. And that journey of discovery of what you're going to do, how are you going to do it, attacking it, having faith, having a lot of lack of confidence at times, and then resolve and then finally finishing it would be our equivalent of having your MVP or your minimally viable prototype or minimal viable prototype. And um, and it's true that in the startup world, over 50% of all startups fail because of marketing. So it's very analogous. And I also feel that every founder is an artist. For and sure. and that the um, the medium that they paint with, what they create, how they create their market, their industry is obviously different, but they are all um, they're all artists. So that's why I wanted to have you on the show, also because I think that there's an imp- so important to connect us all and in our passions and how we want to transform the world and impact the world in our own way. And it doesn't matter if you're creating the next best beautiful shoe or sneaker or beauty product or oil painting or whatever it may be. Um, It's all about creative expression and your mission and your passion and all great entrepreneurs need to be supported. And so I really thank you for being on the show. I can't thank you enough for having me. My pleasure. So most importantly, I would love for our listeners to be able to learn more about you and all that you're doing. So would you mind sharing a website? Yeah, KimberlyBrooks.com. Perfect. Okay, great. And if you want to take one of my painting classes, that's where you can find that too. I I teach painting online to people from all over the world, and it's a blast. And is your book available through the site or is it through Amazon? The the book is published by Chronicle Books. It's available everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, shop, you know, bookshop.org, Chronicle Books, and bookstores. Awesome. Well, Kimberly, so great to connect with you. I will connect with you offline again. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And tune in next week for more Startup Hacks. We have another great show you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money when building your business.